Hi, this is Delegate Eric Ludke, Majority Leader of the Maryland House of Delegates, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties and one of the best sources for dad jokes in the entire state of Maryland. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Today on the podcast, we are going to talk about Maryland's fiscal picture, which continues to get rosier, at least for now. We'll try and figure out what's driving massive surpluses and what it means for the next legislative session and maybe beyond. Michael, I know this is right up your alley. Are you excited to talk about Maryland's fiscal picture and what is going on with this economy? I'm I'm always down to to talk numbers and try and break this stuff down. You know, we we got a little in the weeds and and nerded out a little bit last week and some of our reliable listeners got back to us and said this this is the good stuff. This is what we want. So so dig in. We'll try not to inundate with like lots of numbers, but what's going on behind the numbers is what I think we want to get into today. Yes, and I'll tell you regarding the podcast, I was at the Maryland Association of Election Officials Conference this morning. It was great. It was a great exchange. But more than one person, more than two, three, four people came up to me (laughs) and said, hey, we love that podcast. And I think maybe that's because we've been talking a lot about elections. But yeah, (laughs) yeah, I think people want the deep dives without all the uh, the numbers, which makes things confusing. And that's what we'll do. But Michael, this has been coming up a lot in Mako's visits to county officials, right? I mean, Mako goes out every year and visits every county. That's important. But this is one, the economy and what's going on with revenues, it's coming up quite a bit. Yeah, it, it definitely has been. And I think, I mean, I, mean I, I no longer am surprised when the conversation steers that direction, but it is kind of a, a pretty reliable give and take. You know, Mako shows up, we're an agenda item before the county commissioners in, in some county, and they bring us up and, and the, the association president and I kind of give a walkthrough of some things that Mako has focused on, and we talk about some legislative accomplishments and so forth. And like you can imagine... Like I want to talk about bills. I want to. I want to get into. You know, we had a success on this, and we negotiated that, and we got this really good takeaway on emergency services. And here's some stuff that happened on fiscal issues and on public health issues. Like I, I want to go through that sort of stuff. And reasonably often, we end up getting steered back to like bread and butter, and <laughs> and and one of those areas that reliably will come from the county electeds to Mako is. Can, can you help sort out like what the heck is going on here? The, you know, government revenues seem really strong. The economy is in a good spot. Like what's, what the heck is going on with all this stuff? And I, I feel like this is really on everybody's mind and, and reasonably so, because it's a tricky circumstance. Maryland just ended another fiscal year with a huge anticipated budget surplus. And this year, Michael, a chunk of that windfall will automatically be redirected to state savings accounts. So stuff like school construction programs, state employee wage increases, and the rainy day fund, and that's all due to budget language. But after all of that is accounted for, all told, Maryland is sitting on an unassigned balance of $1.121 billion, Michael. So let's get into what's going on and the big drivers there. Number one, personal income tax. So personal income tax general fund revenues increased by about 16%, and that's all due to better than expected results 
mostly for the calendar year 2021, Michael. Income taxes collected in 21 get settled up in 22. What are the big drivers there when, when we come and look at personal income tax in terms of this surplus? So Maryland, like most states, but probably even a little more than than some others, income tax is is now the principal driver of our state budget. And that's a policy decision our state made decades ago, that we're an income tax reliant state that allows you to have a more progressive structure and so forth. And we've, we've talked about that here and there. So that's where you start when you talk about the general fund revenues that drive the ability to just offer government service, you know, writ large and you know, public education and you know, so forth, like all, all the stuff top to bottom through the general fund, the income tax is number one for the state government by far. The, the easiest piece of the income tax is like folks like us who earn a paycheck and you have some withholding comes out of your paycheck. That's an estimate of what you think you're going to owe up in taxes. Then you do your returns in April or you defer till the fall and you, you, you settle up by the, you know, by the following year. Like you just said, you know, people earning money in 21 end up settling that stuff up in early 22. And then we have a decent idea where government revenues are from that. So wage earners is, is generally your, your, your quick snapshot of how the economy is doing. What are they withholding as estimated taxes? That's your first finger in the breeze. And that's a reasonably good indicator of how strong the economy is and how strong your revenues are going to be for the year ahead. So that's always piece number one. And wage taxes were elevated, but primarily that's just kept up with inflation. So not a huge significant growth when it comes to uh, wage taxes. But Michael, there has been significant non-wage income growth. And I'm going to let you get into what that means and why it's so hard to predict. Yeah, this is the, the other piece of income taxes that is much harder to predict. It's much less reliable year to year that, you know, again, most of us who have a job the following year have the same kind of job and we're in the same sort of income strata. And if we get some, you know, some growth or whatever, that's kind of predictable. Other sorts of income, things like, you know, people who, who get their income because they're a partner in a small business or they have a family-owned, you know, mom and pop shop or a small business of some sort that the income of the business sort of comes through to them as individuals. That's a really common setup. You have an LLC or a partnership or an S corporation, all those sorts of pass-through entities. A lot of people just file every quarter, they file estimated taxes rather than a weekly paycheck. They just file that way. And Okay, those those are much less predictable year to year. Um, and then you have the whole extra class of income that's from not not from wages and not from business activity, but just from things like the sale of something at a higher price than you bought it. Right. If, so capital gains, we think of it as stock, but it can be all, all sorts of different things. But when you sell something and you've made money, you know, relative to what you bought it for, there's a capital gain there that becomes taxable income at the time you make the sale. And capital gains connected to you know, gains in the stock market or other kinds of investments and so forth, that is a really volatile part of the tax base. It moves around a whole lot. Some of it is connected to what's happened today, you know, this year, but some of it is long-term and it's really tough to try and pin down what's going to happen in the next, you know, in the next year. 
you know, capital gains income alone, now that accounts for more than $1 billion in personal income tax revenue. And certainly that contributed to the high rate of growth in the fiscal 22 personal income tax revenues, Michael. But beginning earlier this year, stock prices began to decrease. So now it feels like there is a lot of volatility in investing. And both government and corporate bonds, which are typically considered to be, you know, safe havens for investors, those have also declined. So maybe we're in for a rude awakening here and that capital gains aren't going to do so well in the years ahead. What do you think about that? If, if we had a firm handle on where, where would you want to invest today to make a ton of money for next year, uh, we wouldn't be stuck in this podcast. You know, we would be up, you know, rubbing elbows with the high rollers and so forth. So that's that's not our goal for today. But I, I will say, like, people who have money to invest are usually looking for some combination of reward and risk that makes sense. And a lot of people would argue that in the long term, the stock market, investing in, you know, in, in, in publicly traded companies is a net positive that over the long haul, it has short-term risk, but you should expect long-term gains. Um, if you want to play it safer, playing in the bond market, some folks find like fixed income investing. I'm going to buy a bond at a certain percent return. And as long as whoever issued that bond doesn't you know, doesn't default, then I know what my returns are going to be. That feels like a safer game. But like you said, in the environment we've been in the last number of months, when inflation rises, then interest rates tend to go up with that to keep up with inflation. If you're stuck on what seemed like a pretty good 3% bond a year ago, you're stuck in a 10-year 10, 10 bond at 3%, you've just lost a lot of book value on that investment, even though your money is still there. Um, that 3% no longer looks attractive. So suddenly you can, on paper, have lost money in the bond market. Um, it's it's a tough spot to be in. We, t we tend to see a flight to quality, that, that people look for something that's safe. Sometimes people want to buy gold, but a lot of times people want to buy government bonds or things that feel really safe and the likelihood of the likelihood of the government being unable to pay up on its bonds seems like a lower risk than some private company, you know. So I, I don't know. The, the, the environment we're in for investments is really weird. And what is that going to yield for capital gains? Well, certainly the last six months on the stock market have not been conducive for people to be making a ton of money in the market. I mean, you can you can short a stock or whatever, get caught in one of these meme stocks buying, you know, Bed Bath and Beyond and things like that. Yeah, that's that, hopefully that's not what any of our uh, you know government investors are doing. But uh, it's yeah. it, it's 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 a weird circumstance for investment, and that leads people who are trying to guess what's going to happen with investment earnings and capital gains. They're like pulling their hair out right now. Absolutely. And while we're on the topic, Michael, we are in a new economy. We we have fewer in-person workers. We have a lot more delivery orders substantially more goods production. And so do you think that, you know, this new economy factors into these higher than expected income tax revenues? I mean, what is going on here? There has to be a reason why why we're seeing growth and unanticipated revenues year after year here. This has now become a trend. I, I don't think we can nail this down with a whole lot of clarity. I think, you know, we, we sort of had this conversation around this time last year as as the fiscal forecasts were looking strong for the state in the fall of 21. And I think we started getting into speculation about, you know, maybe, maybe there's some shift in 
the workforce, among among earners, we've we've sort of heard about the great resignation. I don't know what the numbers are behind that, if the and if they really back up the impression that a lot of people have that tons of people have just walked away from the conventional workplace. But certainly there has been some shift in the opportunities people are taking advantage of to just put food on the table. And you know, to the extent that that some folks have moved from a kind of employment that may not have been accompanied with as much paperwork as what they're doing today. Um, if, if, you know, if you were sort of paid under the table in cash or in tips in, in your old job, but now you're doing something else that's with a corporation that's on the books or you, uh, you're, you're a, a gig economy worker and you're, you're an independent contractor getting a statement from the company that, that you work with, um, maybe there are some people who are showing up on the tax rolls today who weren't there previously or, or didn't have all of their income showing up previously. I, I still feel like that might be part of what's going on. I also feel like on the demand side, like maybe maybe we need to have more of a reckoning on what has changed on the demand side for just the kinds of you know services and 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 commodities and so forth that that people just buy in their everyday lives like i mean how how many of us have changed our buying habits and living habits over the last couple of years as a function of being at home more frequently and i don't know i mean like even even just for for a while when most families felt like you couldn't go out to the restaurant you know for a family dinner and if you used to do that once a week and you were used to spending 100 bucks what do you do with that hundred bucks? And mm-hmm. you know, you, you you cook you cook spaghetti at home instead of going to the the Italian restaurant. Um, I think that turned into a lot of those, you know, you know, delivery delivery dinners. And well, we'll we'll buy something more extravagant from the grocery store. We'll have mm-hmm. the groceries delivered to us. Or other things like that. I think started popping up. I know it has with my family. We made some substitutes and that sort of thing. Maybe there's. Maybe there are wholesale changes on the demand side as a result of changes in behavior. I I think there's something to that as well, don't you? I do. I do. And I mean, I think there's certainly an industry, a whole new industry. I mean, DoorDash and Uber Eats, they were around before COVID, but they certainly weren't as prevalent as they are now. And I think some of those habits are sticking um, that would not only mean increases in income tax, but also sales tax. And usually, Michael, sales tax is a good and reliable, strong indicator month by month on the strength of the uh, overall economy. And what we're seeing from the state is that general fund sales tax revenue increased by 20% and total sales and use tax revenue increased by 22%. So, Michael, first of all, it's crazy. Let's, 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 <laughs> yeah, it's, it's wild, right? But let's hammer out. And remember, at the beginning of the pandemic, everybody thought, oh, my goodness, sales tax revenue is going to just tank. You know, no right. one's buying anything. Um, no one's open. So we're going to get hammered. But this is a big, big increase. And it's bolstered, I think, by, you know, high nominal income growth. And then, of course, Michael, the sales and use tax base has recently expanded to include online retailers and digital goods. And that gets back to the Amazon phenomenon, right? right? Like if people are at home and they have this money to burn because they're not going to baseball games or restaurants, they just pull up Amazon and they're buying more household goods. So maybe that's what we're seeing. Is that part of this in your mind, Michael? It seems like consumption spending did hold up well over the pandemic because total income kept growing. And that's largely, I think, due to government stimulus efforts. But generally speaking, the sales tax is through yeah. the roof. I, I mean, I think, I mean, you got to put that number in context that 
if 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 your job is as a revenue forecaster for the state of Maryland or for any kind of public entity, and you're trying to figure what's going to happen with next year's sales tax across the whole population, you generally are thinking about a range from, hey, you know, if this has been a sluggish year and people aren't feeling all that great about the economy and some people are, you know, we got a high unemployment, things are laid off. If we're in a mild recession, then you might figure the sales tax grows 2% or something like that. That's a down year, Mm -hmm. but an up year would be something like, five, six, maybe seven. Maybe you maybe you can think about, wow, what would it be like if we actually got 7% growth in sales tax because there was that hot of an economy? Mm-hmm. So that, I mean, that's the universe. If, if inflation is two or 3%, then that's kind of the universe of what you think about with sales tax growth. To be talking about 18 and 22% growth in the general sales tax is absolutely bananas. It just, it mostly doesn't happen. So, mm-hmm. You're you're left feeling like there has to be some artificial stimulant here, and that that that's why we're scratching our heads over what sort of effects from the pandemic, from changes in our way of life, or from you know government support that's filtering through in a variety of ways, right? I mean, mm-hmm. in addition to folks just changing their habits, I mean, you know, how many how many people in Maryland and elsewhere? Have have basically not had to pay rent month to month. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've been affected by COVID, you've basically gotten an opportunity to not be, you know, to not get evicted by a landlord for a window of time um, for for failure to pay rent. Or you may have gotten rental assistance payments, or your landlord might have gotten them directly. Um, if, if suddenly you don't pay rent, that gives you an awful lot of, you know, potential dollars lying around that you might have had to pay the rent that can go for a pair of shoes or a, or a subway sub or whatever, right? And the DoorDash. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, you, you, talking about stimulus payments, I mean, yes, those are generally over, but there, I think, is a delay between the allocation of that money and people spending it. I think a lot of people saved a big chunk of their stimulus checks and those payments. So the impact of the stimulus took some time to dissipate. And that's what we're continuing to see play out here, Michael. And, and so who knows what happens moving forward? Certainly, it seems like people uh, continue to spend money. It's just in different ways. And of course, when you factor in now, we are placing taxes on those online transactions. When you move to that kind of an economy, of course, that's going to see a spike. But I agree, 20% is is just unheard of. That that's, right. that's crazy, right? And I like, can you imagine Michael trying to to figure out what the revenues are going to be for next year at this point? Like that that sounds bananas to me. Or, or just think, you know, back in June of 2020, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, at the, you know, we we know that the country has fallen into a public health crisis and pandemic, and and we know that the federal government is worried about this being accompanied by a giant economic crisis. We already had a short-term crash in the stock market in. March or April of 2020. If you're sitting down in June of 2020 trying to trying to forecast state government revenues for the year ahead, would you be saying it's going to be great? It's going to be gangbusters. The money is going to be bananas, and we're you know we're going to have this unbelievable growth. So let's start spending lots of dollars. Mm-hmm. I mean, you'd be laughed out of the room. I think. I don't yes. know. I mean, I mean, I couldn't have taken anybody seriously with those kind of with the projections that matched what we actually saw. Mm-hmm. I never would have bought it. And just as an 
armchair, you know, would be frustrated economist. I never would have would have thought that's where we'd be headed. Now we're looking back over, you know, a year and a half or two years of remarkably resilient economic indicators, what seems like an underpinned demand for all sorts of things that generate tax revenues. And the big question is, how long does this last? Is this just a new normal or is this is this buoyed up by things that were temporary as a result of you know, the pandemic and our short term behavior changes and maybe government actions related to it? But the whole thing is, is just fascinating to me, I think. Right. And so the last big driver here of this surplus is corporate income tax. Corporate income tax revenues increased by 16 percent. And again, a big number, and that's due to significant profit growth following a slump in the second quarter of 2021. So what we saw there was, you know, the economy is rebounding, business profits are up. Any thoughts on corporate income tax, Michael? Because again, you know, these numbers are somewhat delayed. You know, we're looking at numbers from last year, but now we've seen the market, as we've already talked about, start to tank. I think it's just, it's more evidence of a demand side change that if if a lot of that non-wage income, that is the big mover in income taxes, is from things like people who have small businesses and they're providing services and other stuff like that. If they're getting higher demand for their service, then that shows up both as pass-through income to them as individuals, if they're just partners or, or you know, stakeholders or LLC members. But then in other cases, with a more formal corporate structure, if you went out and bought a deck, right? I mean, tons of people did that. Well, if I'm going to be home for that long and working from home, I'm going to build a new deck or I'm going to build a, an add-on or I'm going to build a new you know, room inside my, inside my, my house for, for office work. All that kind of stuff, those, you know, that that firm who came out and helped you out, they're filing a corporate income tax return and they've had a strong couple of years as well. I, I think it's I think it's all pointing toward demand side changes. Or if you're like Michael, you went out and bought all this swag for your new Zoom room and you know you wanted to look good. So, you know, maybe everybody's just furnishing their new Zoom rooms so that they look good and they can get rated on room raider on twitter a 10 out of 10 and that's i know like your goal michael and that is, I to get that. that is really my goal yes and so i mean i'm i'm not a big i'm not a big enough deal to get yeah you know, in that universe but but in the in the event that it happens i'm i've gotten some thumbs up from some of our county folks uh, that's good enough for me all right so we've walked through what's going on with the numbers where they are let's take a break here and when we'll come back, we will try to crystal ball a little bit, both in terms of what happens next with tax trends, but also what this means for the legislative session in a few months in Annapolis. And we'll talk about what role the Federal Reserve plays in all of this. All that and more after the break. The Local Government Insurance Trust is the primary source for Maryland local governments to get insurance coverage. When the private insurance market doesn't understand your needs and doesn't really want to be in the business of covering your law enforcement officers and other public employees, Legit will be there. That is exactly why Legit was created over 30 years ago. Legit is different. Legit is owned and managed by its local government members. That means that when we do well, you do well. Members get premium credits when the trust has a good year. And Legit offers training and best practices year-round to make sure our members are doing their best with risk management. Competitive prices, outstanding service, and coverage that fits your needs as a local government. You can't beat Legit for all your coverage needs. 
Find out more at lgit.org or drop by their exhibit space at the MML or MAKO conference. Welcome back to the Condo Street Podcast. Here with Michael Sanderson, this is Kevin Canale. So, Michael, we've talked through the weird situation right now. Tax revenues are strong. The state government has a fund balance. And things still look pretty strong for the year ahead. So let's try to play this forward. Right. So, Michael, let's let's talk about what the outlook is here. And I mentioned before the break the Federal Reserve. And a lot of this, a lot of the outlook does depend on the Federal Reserve, which, by the way, just raised its benchmark interest rate by three quarters of a point for the third time this year. They also did that in June and July. So, Michael, talk about the Federal Reserve and why what they do matters very, very much in this economy. I think there are are various theories among different economists of what things actually change the nature of economic activity. But an awful lot of wise people would say that monetary policy is the main way that the government can affect the, the, the sort of intensity in the economy. So basically by setting interest rates and then expecting that the market for borrowing money will move along with those numbers it is a way to sort of, it's sort of like a throttle on the economy, you know, on a, a speedboat. You, you open, open up the engine and things really fly, you slow things down and things cool off. And interest rates nominally are the way the government tries to have a handle on that sort of thing. A lot of people just sort of uh, give credit and blame to the sitting president for the nature of the economy, in my judgment, more than is fair. But where we where we sit right now is we're facing inflation fears. We've talked about that, and you can't you can't uh, you know watch the news or watch commentary on on television and so forth without running into people who have opinions about inflation. And Usually, inflation is a function of well, the the economy's overheated, and and everybody's expecting big raises and big bumps and so forth, and that builds in some some structural reasons for inflation. I'm, I'm not sure that that's where we are now. This is we continue to say it's a weird economic circumstance, but when the Federal Reserve goes and bumps up benchmark interest rates, that's basically. You know, they're taking away the punch bowl just as the party's starting to get good. That's the the old saying, right? So the, the idea is to cool things off a bit. Three-quarter percent increase in, the inter- in interest rates is a pretty big deal. And it's meant to cool off inflation worries. And if that means that whatever heat there is in the economy will click down a little bit, then that should have a calming effect. That's the intent. And you know, a lot of body language and, and written language from from the board of governors of, of the Fed, but that's what they have in mind. So you bump up interest rates, it becomes more expensive to build that factory or to launch a new business or all those sort of you know things in the economy associated with growth and new activity. It just it's just the cost of doing all that stuff goes up a little bit, so people do a bit less. Right. And this is, you know, this is a very difficult game that the Fed has to play here, because if you throttle up a little too much, you could be in a bad circumstance. And if you throttle down too much, you're in a bad circumstance. I mean, when the Fed signals that they're going to raise rates, especially in the times we're in now, you see the markets react. And I believe it's not so much that they're worried about the rates. Yeah, that's the thing. It's a problem but more so that the Fed is going to mess it up, right? And that they'll drive the economy into a recession because there is so much on their shoulders now. So I think a lot of investors 
see the Fed, you know, these multiple increases now, they're worried that the Fed is going to go too far and that they could drive the economy into a recession. And let's talk about that a little bit and, and sort of what the Fed is dealing with, because if they tighten monetary policy too much, it's very likely to push growth negative and cause a recession, right? And that that's right. number one. Like that's that's the worry, right? That's what investors are worried about. So I, I think I think that's the that's the generic worry that when you have an aggressive Fed that's raising interest rates and trying to put some degree of dampers on the economy, there, there's always somebody who feels like no no no, open it up, let's go, let's roll, right? In this moment, when there's as much uncertainty as there is today over what's the underlying nature of the economy, using the usual tools of things are looking a little too hot, let's cool off the economy by raising interest rates. If you're using that tool, thinking that this is, you know, this is a wide open, white hot economy, and it's really not, if really the underlying economy is kind of fictitious then maybe the timing for that is bad. And I think that's that's sort of a compounding effect why you know, we had a shock last week in the stock market. Word gets out that, that it sounds like there's going to be, you know, it sounds like uh, inflation is still serious and that's going to move the Fed and they're going to do three quarters or maybe even a full percent increase. All this stuff happened you know, early this, this week and you end up with a giant, terrible day in the stock market. Um, mostly by people saying, gosh, are they, are, are they reading this wrong? Are they going to mess this up? The other side of this is if the Fed does too little, the inflationary boom will you know, presumably continue in the near term. And eventually the Fed would have to tighten policy more aggressively to reduce that inflation. And that could risk a more severe recession later on. Right. So, I mean, all this stuff is above our pay grade, mm -hmm. but it does trickle down to the things that really matter on the ground. So as we're trying to think about what's going to be the setting for the state government doing a budget you know, early in 2023 and for counties who are going to need to do their budget soon thereafter, um, what they're all thinking about is what kind of footing are we going to be on? If we're going to slide into a true recession and then we'll have piles of people unemployed, which is not really where we are now, um, you know, if that's if that's going to be the environment we're going to be in come February or April or June, then that's a really different circumstance than, oh, you know, the public revenues are super strong and this is going to be a year to make big investments in things like those are really different circumstances. And. Yeah, good, good luck. If you if you know with with certainty what next March is going to look like, then you know you you need to be working with the big shots and and wearing a pinstripe suit. Let's just say uh, if the Fed hits the sweet spot and they get it right, and we hope they do, that these revenues are likely to be sustained. At least that's what we heard from the comptroller's folks, and that's what we heard from the Bureau of Revenue Estimates. That if they get it right, and we find that quote unquote soft landing spot, that we're going to continue to see these revenues at least in the short term. But as you said. Really, really hard to to get a grasp and make a firm prediction here. So all this leads, Michael, we're talking about the economy. We know what the numbers are. They're looking really good again. They have exceeded expectations again. And we have a session coming up in just a few months. Hard to believe, right? Yeah. But what is, what is the General Assembly to do here? I mean, we've already said some of this money automatically went into various programs. So they've already you know decided through budget language previously 
that some of this money is going to go into certain things, but they still have now uh, over a billion I mean, unallocated revenue. So that's money that they have not decided how to spend right. yet. Right. And so there's a few things here, right? Like you could either save all the money, which some people are saying, including the comptroller, we don't know what things are going to look like. So let's not go wild and spend it. The General Assembly can also invest in short-term capital projects, right? We talked about that before last session when we had another surplus. And the idea there is you don't want to commit money in the long term because you don't know if these res revenues are sustainable. So you just build a bunch of capital stuff and it's one-time costs, you're done. Or, you know, some people say, why don't you just send it back to the taxpayers? So, Michael, those are some of the options on the table. But ultimately, fiscal leaders are going to have to decide what exactly to do here. Right. And I, I think that's, um, in many ways, I think that's center stage for for how things are gonna gonna look and play out starting January in Annapolis. And I mean the, the fact that this is on the heels of an election year where all these players, most of these leaders are going to be in new to their roles is a compounding factor. But I mean, I think this is basically the biggest question that lands right in the laps of everybody who wins their election in this November is an incoming governor who will be new and comptroller who will be new to that role. And um, the the legislative leadership will have turnover, but we know many of them have not been in their current station for years and years and years. So, so we're going to be in that weird setting. And with the transition, I mean, maybe the first thing to talk about is the transition in the gubernatorial administration and the administration of government, the executive branch, this is weird because the new governor doesn't get sworn in until the middle of January. And so you'll have the outgoing governor. It'll be Governor Hogan and his team will develop the budget that gets presented to the General Assembly in right. January. Right. So people don't realize, people are thinking that, well, there's going to be a new governor, so this will be entirely a function of his priorities, and we're going to find out all the things that the new governor wants. But if you dial back... In you know, in 2015, it was outgoing Governor O'Malley presented basically a you know stay the course kind of budget for in the 2015 session, and Governor Hogan was sworn in in January. Got a chance to do a little bit of tinkering, but for the most part, it was an O'Malley proposed budget just because of the timing of the you know the the change in administration. So that's that's a wrinkle in itself. Now, Michael, the, the other wrinkle here is that we are going to have a new budget process. And we we talked about that a while back, but remind people uh, what the new process is. It, it's brand new. Voters decided, yes, that the General Assembly should actually have more of a role and how that new process is going to play in. You mentioned that it's Governor Hogan's budget, but there is a wrinkle here with the new budget process. It's it's a meaningful wrinkle. We we did talk about this while it was a, a pending question for voters back in the I guess the 2020 election, you you generally do these things so they don't take effect until the next political cycle. So it'll be in the 23 session is the first year where this takes effect. But um, for decades, we've had what what we call an executive budget and short version, meaning nothing gets into the current year's budget unless the governor introduces it. And the, the sort of trade off as a contrast with other states where the legislature, for the most part, can add, subtract, and really build its own budget. And the U.S. Congress can do the same thing to the president's budget. Um, in contrast to that structure, 
the governor's the only one who can put money into the current year's budget, but then the governor doesn't have the sort of line item veto authority that that he or she might have in most other states. So there's sort of a political trade-off, but most people would have said for years and years that Maryland's Maryland's budget process is the most governor-centered in the United States, that the, the Maryland governor has the most budget authority of any any U.S. governor. I think that's mm-hmm. basically been the case. Now, the new, new process this year is to the extent the legislature cuts money from, you know, basically reduces the bottom line in the spending plan, they can then reallocate up to the total amount proposed by the governor. So they can't just build their own budget. But if they cut $100 million by here and there and nicks and dents and so forth, which is the usual budget cycle, they cut a million, 100 million, maybe 200 million, then they would have the opportunity to redirect those funds to other things of their own choosing, as opposed to it used to be, you'd go back to the governor and ask the governor, hey, would you, now that we've cut a bunch of things out of the budget, would you recycle some of this money in and we'd like to do this and that? And so right, that's, and, that, and that and that happened all the time. I mean that that was standard practice, right? Like so, this is a this is a significant change, and in an in an uncertain economy and with another surplus. I mean, you have to imagine this is even more than it would normally. This is going to play a big role in the next session. This new process, I, I think it definitely does. Um, and yeah, I guess as you think about it. Um, First of all, like with so many new players and this whole new system showing up for the first time this year, just the range of outcomes, right? I'm I'm thinking of that the the map of the tropical storm where you're you're seeing the big cone of where it might land, and the width of the cone is an indication of how you know how uncertain things are. Um the the width, <laughs> like the uncertainty here. Of, of who might do what and what the priorities might emerge from new legislative leadership, from new fiscal leadership and new administration. Uh, it's just like it's it's mind boggling the, the the depth of how, how far this could go. But so 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 it's like we have a hurricane churning out in the Atlantic and the cone is the entire East Coast. Like that's, <laughs> right. Yeah, it feels it feels like it's that degree of uncertainty here. Right. I guess one thing you would say is it's the bottom line spending amount in the proposed budget is going to be an extraordinarily important, you know, just like a, that's, that's it. That's where you, the first thing you want to look when the, when the governor's budget shows up in January is what's the bottom line spending number, because that's going to end up like how you get to that is going to become basically a legislative determination, but the total spending plan is still in the governor's hands. And then the governor leaves office and a new governor shows up. And then how much does that get revised potentially by that? All that TBA. Right. So that bottom line number is the most important because that's the money that they will have to to play with, if you will. That's the money they can move around, but they cannot exceed right that, that bottom line number. So what the governor decides to put in will be really, really important here. And, you know, Michael, if you if you're looking ahead to. Uh, to, to to March, right? Like it, it does pretty, it feels unlikely that we'll have another uh, major or significant revenue write-up. And that's the the final revenue estimates. I mean, they come in in March yeah. and, and you know, and that's good news. It creates a little dessert, if you will, for the budget plan. Uh, since we're already in a really good spot, it's hard to imagine that we see something like a $300 million write-up in March. Right. But, you know, we, we saw something like that last year. So I guess it's not out of the question, right? 
I suppose not. I, I, I can't get my head around that happening, but um, I, I mean, I guess expect the unexpected to some degree. So, um, but the, you're, you're right that it is a pretty common circumstance that everybody's wringing their hands over a tough budget. And boy, we just, you know, we, we're, we're 70 million away from a plan that all comes together. We're going to try and nip and tuck and find this 70. And then, you know, that, that's all happening through sort of the month of February. Then the revenue estimates get altered. And, and I, I'm not suggesting like anyone's cooking the books, but sometimes it's just, hey, what do you know? Sales tax is actually coming in pretty strong. And the number of people who are earning wages and filing their quarterlies looks pretty strong. So we actually think that revenues are going to, we're going to write up that revenue forecast by an extra three quarters of a percent. But if that's $150 million or something like that, that's certainly your $70 million budget problem has evaporated. And now you've got like a little opportunity on top of that. So, you know, a little, we're, we're, we're kind of used to having the March revenue changes sometimes afford a little bit of, you know, a little, little lanyard for, uh, for how you bring it all together. Some dessert, right? Yeah. So, I mean, look, this, this year ahead is probably the hardest to predict. It's a weird economy. We have uh, changes in artificial funding issues and where it all lands. We don't know. Neither does anyone in Annapolis at this point, but hopefully, <laughs> hopefully we were able to break down some of this stuff and why the numbers are what they are. A lot of uncertainty, but it is a high stakes situation ahead and very interesting if you do like this kind of stuff. And, and I think our listeners do. Any final thoughts here, Michael, before we get out of here for, for today? I, I think this is different than sitting around the family, you know, the, the, the family dining room where where you, you go through the numbers and you talk about the family budget for the month and so forth. The idea that there's two billion dollars in surplus or after you've you've tucked some of it away in various places, another billion one, it, it makes it sound like happy days are here again. We're going to be able to like we'll pull we'll, well, you know fully fund the the pension system and all these obligations. We'll have more money for all the education formulas and everything anybody wants is going to be taken care of because a billion sure sounds like an infinite amount of money. The reality is probably really different, and the certainty that that money can just go out the door without eclipsing your ability to hold up your promises you've already made is not really all that clear. So. Don't get ahead of yourselves in, in like coming up with your plan to spend the, the, the billion dollars this year and next. Well said, and we will leave it there for today. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way, all of these episodes will be sent directly to the device of your choice. You can also follow along on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and then, of course, you can read the Conduit Street blog. We'll put some links in this episode's show notes. But... For Michael Sanderson, for our producer, Victoria Moss, and myself, Kevin Canale, thanks for listening, and we will talk to you soon.